Hey, uh, we're wrapping up a series entitled Love this week. We've been looking at the concept of love from the scriptures. You know, in the English language, we use the word love to describe our affection for pizza or food. And we use that same word to describe our affection for our parents or our kids. And so we kind of understand the difference. But the truth is that love, uh, it has a lot of different ideas within it in the English language. And so um, I thought it very important to dig into a little deeper what love means as found in the Scriptures, as defined for us by God. When we say the word love, when it comes to God's affection and feelings and, uh, and uh, commitment and sacrifice for us, it's very different than anything we've ever experienced before, anything we've ever understood before. And so it's so important. Uh, love is central to the Christian faith. Probably one of the most important concepts or ideas uh, or truths to really understand and live in because love transforms Love, as, as, uh, as comes from God, as lived out by God, love is the most powerful thing. And it, it has changed everything for you and for me and really for all of the human race. And so we've got to figure this out. We've got to look into it. Love, again, is not just a fluffy feeling thing. But when it comes from God, man, it's, it's deep and thick and gritty. It's sacrificial. Um, it's, it, it has some blood on it, right? And, and it's, it's more than, than what we think of. And so um, last week we ended our, uh, our message looking at John chapter 15 where we learned about loving God and living in God's love. We ended with Jesus saying this, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. That's how you're going to show that you love me, okay? You can say you love me all you want, but are you keeping my commandments? That's how I know that you really love me. And he said, this is my commandment that you love one another. And so Jesus laid it out in John 15, hit us with that commandment to love each other, that that is the directive, a command again from God. This week we're going to unpack that a little bit more by looking at another one of the Apostle John's writings, teachings, um, which is the epistle of 1 John. So if you want to turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be in a section of that passage today, um, of that chapter, and we're going to be looking into a little bit more this command to love, this idea of loving each other. Uh, titled the message today, Love, if you truly love God, then you will also love people. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thank you for the chance to be here. We do not take for granted this uh, opportunity that we have to join together to look into your word, to sit under your, uh, your scripture, your revelation to us, to be changed by it, to be challenged by it, to be molded by it, because it is your very words and your very, uh, your very truth to us. And so God, uh, impress upon us the things we need to hear. Uh, Father, uh, help us to understand things in a little more uh, rich way. And Father, move us in the areas that we need to change. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, again, the apostle, the apostle John um, wrote this epistle. And here's what's really cool to me, one of the really cool things about the Scriptures, about God's Word. You know, the Bible teaches us that the Scriptures, it says all Scripture is God-breathed, okay, or inspired. And that concept is this, that God communicated his truth 
through the individuals that wrote the words that went on the page. The ones that wrote these books and these letters and, and uh, these writings were inspired. So God was breathing through them. The Spirit of God was breathing truth through them so that as they penned these words, it is the revelation of God. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing. It's so powerful. It gives us the confidence that when we read the Scriptures, we're not just reading the thoughts of human beings, which some people who are critics of Christianity say that's all it is, but it's not. It's the revelation of God. It is God's thoughts for us. But a part of the process is that God did use human authors. And so the really cool thing as we read the scriptures is that we see the personalities of these men in their writings. And so today we're looking at the writings of Apostle of the Apostle John. Um, there are a number of writings of his in the New Testament. They're called the Johannine literature, all connected to him. Uh, the thought is, and the belief is, looking at church history, that he had a little a school where he was teaching and instructing people in, the, in being disciples of Jesus and following him. Uh, the books, uh, writings in the New Testament attributed to him are uh, the Gospel of John, which again is the story of the good news of, of Jesus coming to the earth and the sacrifice God made on our behalf and the opportunity to be saved through that sacrifice, right? And then he wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which are letters to the churches. Again, these were instruction to people that were living in community, following Jesus. And then, of course, he also wrote the apocalyptic writing book of Revelation, which is a very exciting book. You know, a lot of people, the times that we're in, uh, you know, there's a lot of disruption, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot going on, and people go, is this the end of time? Like, is Jesus going to come back soon? Is the end of the world coming soon? And, and I, I kind of think, as I've looked at history, that almost every generation asks that question at some point. Um, and I think it's a good question to ask. It's the right thing to be asking. And I would encourage you to look into the book of Revelation. That is one of God's gifts to us that reveal what's going to happen at the end of time when everything comes to an end. What are we looking for? What is going to take place? And so you should know as you navigate life, <laughs> what it, how do I know if the end is coming? I mean, certainly we're always getting closer, right? We're always getting closer. But are we there? Are we, the, are we actually uh, in the last few years or the last few moments before Jesus returns? And so uh, book of Revelation is awesome for that. Apocalyptic literature. So John is responsible for these. His writings are some of the later writings that we have in the New Testament and really the Bible in general. He, uh, some of the earlier books in the Bible, the uh, Gospel of Mark, and some of those that were at the beginning were uh, come around in the 30s and 40s. And then uh, after Jesus, right, A.D. And then John's writings are like after 90 uh, into some, some people think even maybe um, after 100 A.D. And so there's some of those later writings. John dealt with some serious issues. He was in his gospel dealing with um, the, um, uh, the false teaching found in uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the belief that there's secret knowledge, okay, secret knowledge, that you must understand if you're really going to be connected to God. Gnosticism it may be a word you've never heard of before, but because it, it started that early, but it's around today. It's popped its head up in recent years. In the 2000s, there was a book that I always try to remind people was in the fiction section. Okay, it was in fiction, but some people took it pretty seriously um, by an author named Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code. 
might remember that. Tom Hanks was in the movie. And so uh, it was a story of things that were subversive and hidden by the Catholic Church primarily. And Gnosticism pops up in there. Some of the Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic Gospel. And it, it indicates in that fictional book, make-believe story, that the Gospel of Thomas was maybe hidden by the church, right? And it was subverted. It's, it's, uh, it's information about Jesus, but it was held down. Now, the problem is that that is fictional because the Gnostic Gospels came along about 400 years plus after Jesus. They were written by people that had no idea who Jesus was. They didn't walk with him. They weren't alive when he walked the earth. And so they're not authoritative. Um, and they weren't discarded uh, through some conspiracy. They were discarded because they have no validity. Okay, so, um, but, but many people got kind of bound up in that. And it's easy to get kind of caught up in all that. Um, and so uh, Gnosticism, again, John was dealing with that. His personality is fiery. He was known as one of the sons of thunder. John, as we're going to see today, does not pull punches. He's going to hit us right between the eyes with truth and a challenge about who we are and where we stand. He's not going to be nicey-nice. You know, he's talking about love, and we're looking at love today. And just so you know, the biblical concept of love is not just hey, let's all get around sing kumbaya and have s'mores around a campfire, okay? And just like each other. That's not love as the Bible describes it. That can be part of it, but it's hard hitting. It's truth. It's caring enough about somebody to wade into some difficulty and get to, um, to uh, some good things. So it does affect how we feel about each other. But John, in love, is gonna punch hard today. It's part of who he is. He's a fiery guy, passionate about love. Love is a theme throughout his writings. And I have to believe, as many have experienced and did experience in his day, but I got to believe that for John, the love of God, understanding and experiencing the love of God and being around Jesus and knowing how Jesus felt about him, the love Jesus had for him. You know, John's called the disciple that Jesus loved. There was a, there was a relationship there that changed his life. And that impacted him so much that he, it permeated all of his teaching and writing. And so we see that. You know, as we walk through this life as human beings, um, we sometimes can project something, okay, that isn't really true. Sometimes we can misdirect people a little bit by our actions and, and the things that we project and put out there. Sometimes we might misread somebody's, uh, what they're projecting and doing, and we might misread it as something it is not. Um, there was a little girl who uh, raised a little lamb as a part of her um, uh, uh, 4-H or whatever. She raised this little lamb. Am I, what do I, we tried to fix this. Okay, um, just ignore it. It's just a little electrical excitement. So um, we go, we go, uh, just making sure you're awake. A little pop. So, um, so this little lamb uh, grew up, and she raised it, and it had good genetics and everything, and it turned into a grand champion at the fair. And so she entered the, the, um, the arena, and they're auctioning this little lamb off. And, and uh, so she's out there with the lamb, and it starts auctioning, and the, the price begins to tick up, and it hits $5 a pound. And the little girl starts crying out in, in the arena, and uh, she's just where with the lamb, just standing there crying. And then it keeps going up, hits $10 a pound, and she puts her arm around that little lamb's neck, and she's crying and just weeping. And so finally it sells for like a thousand bucks and the businessman that bought it said, hey, listen, I'm giving it right back to you, little girl. And everybody was happy and warm fuzzies. And man, what a, what a kind thing. She obviously loves this little lamb. And 
So she went home. Well, later in the year, there was an essay contest statewide, and the little girl entered her submission, submitted her essay. She told about how she had raised a grand champion lamb and how she'd been in the arena selling the lamb during the auction and how the price had just begun to go up beyond anything she could ever imagine. And she began to cry tears of joy over just the, just the appreciation, and she couldn't believe what was going on. And as the price went up and up, she cried more and more, and then finally a businessman bought it for way more than she ever thought she'd get, and then he donated it back to her. And she was like, I was just elated, and we went home, and Dad barbecued it, and it was wonderful. <clears throat> Listen, sometimes we misread what we're seeing, or we project things to manipulate a situation. Hey, the, the, sorry if that was traumatizing to you. Hey, um, when it comes to love, the apostle is going to settle for nothing less than true God-like love. He's not going to let us off the hook. He's not going to let us uh, take, a, take a seat and fake it a little bit. He's not going to let us get away with anything less than the real thing. If we are authentic and real followers of Jesus, belonging to God himself, then we will express love for each other. To not reflect this love for each other, the apostle is going to say today, is to show or reveal that we're phonies. We're not really who we say we are. Our lives are transformed by the love of God. Each of us who have a relationship with him enjoy the forgiveness and love of a good, good heavenly father. The truth is that because you are loved so much, you should love each other. That's what the apostle is saying in this passage. If you're in 1 John chapter 4, follow along as we read starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You know, this passage, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, when I was a kid in Bible school or in Sunday school, we learned a song to these words, to these first two verses. It was in the King James Version, so it has some these and thous and things like that. But, you know, it just went, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and anyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And that stuck in my head. I remembered it. And it's powerful. It's central to the Christian life. Again, we can't pretend, well, we can, but we are just pretending that we're following Jesus and living for God and experiencing this life in, 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 of love in him and not love others. John argues simply that love itself comes from God. God is the source you know, it's funny, as we go through life, and when you start out younger, but some people continue this way, we don't always stop to ask the question, where does that come from, right? I've, I've watched, as young people, discover where the chicken breast that they get in a grocery store, where that comes from, 
right? And to some, it's very troubling to learn that information, right? For others, like, no big deal. I never was a big deal to me. But anyway, I get it. Like, it, for some people, it is. Where does my food come from, okay? That's important thing to know. But, but for some, it's just not a big deal. They don't look into it, never ask the question. How about electricity? We live our lives on electricity. We use electricity. But uh, for many, it's like, well, I don't know where it comes. It comes on the power line, you know. But how does it get made? What's the process? And so um, the other one that I think is interesting is where do babies come from, right? And so um, I found some interesting reactions or thoughts from kids on where babies come from. One mom said that when I was pregnant, my daughter wondered how a baby got into my belly. So she asked me if I ate it. That's how it got in there. Um. How about one other parent said, when I was pregnant, my daughter wondered, um, uh, or no, excuse me, my older child, one parent said, new babies were carried in a special place inside of mommy's uh, tummy, but they hadn't asked how the baby comes out yet. And so one day he asked mom if he could see her belly button. And so she said, sure, belly button, what's the big deal? So she showed it to him. And then he uh, looked at it, kind of made a perplexed noise as he walked off. And then she heard him mutter as he walked away. Well, there's no door. I think probably some moms wished there was a door. Like, that's how we're... But uh, no, no door. <sighs> Another parent said, when my son was four or five, I asked him where he thought babies came from, and he said, the baby store. They have them in cages and stuff. Uh, another parent, another kid, my oldest, originally thought that he had jumped out of a plane over the hospital, and Daddy caught him, and that's how he got in our family. Uh, another uh, parent said, my son asked if we could get him a baby girl, and I asked him where he thought we could pick uh, one up, and he said, Costco. Good place to get babies. Hey, listen, John tells us that God is love, that love comes from God. He is the source of it. If you want to know what love is, and there's a lot of counterfeits to love. We are sinful beings. We live in a sinful world. We're selfish. We come up with ideas of what love is that are far from the truth, far from the source if you want to know what love really is, you got to go to the source of where it comes from. That's how we understand love. And, and John says that the reason we should love others is based on how much we have been loved by God. Ask you a question to think about. Do you live your life each day, each week, each month, whatever? Do you live with an awareness and a consciousness of how much you have been loved by God. Is that something that you walk around with a little bit? I can tell you that on the days you do, you're going to treat others differently. <laughs> you're going to walk through this life with a different interaction with the people around you. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is found in Psalm, uh, and it's Psalm 139. And uh, it's a powerful passage to me. Uh, David, King David, writing it again through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, revealing truth to us about our relationship with God. This is what it says. Listen to the first few verses. He says this, O Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. 
David presents a truth of how God interacts with us. He thinks about you all the time. You uh, are never out of his mind or awareness. He knows what is going to happen to you when you walk out these doors because he's ahead of you. He knows what happened before you walked in the doors because he's behind you. And he is moving to bless your life. And the scriptures are full of how do we live in such a way that we experience the true blessings of God? How do we experience that? How do we walk in that? And this is God's heart for you. God, the Father, his heart for you. Um, Today, one of our struggles with understanding and seeing God as Father is that many in our world today have father wounds, I call them. And they're hurts that come because of a breakdown in relationship with dad. And for many, dad disappeared, was not existent, uh, wasn't in my life, don't even maybe know who he is. For others, it was a tense relationship. Maybe the stresses and worries of life, maybe addiction, maybe uh, who knows, all kinds of things. But they contribute to this breakdown in relationship with dad. And this loss of that important relationship creates uh, hurt and anger and resentment in the lives of many. And it's difficult to walk with that and in that. And uh, I just want to ask you this morning and encourage you, if I can press you a little bit this way, if that's you, and you walk with uh, some pain and some hurt inside, maybe some anger and resentment towards dad because of what happened. Listen, I just want to tell you today that you have a heavenly father, and he is called our father. He represents a perfect father, and he wants to come in to your life and fill some of those cracks and heal some of that brokenness by being what a father is supposed to be. I think sometimes we expect too much of our earthly fathers. Sometimes it's a little bit on us. As we're growing up, we maybe don't understand and we put too much pressure there. But let's be honest. Our dads are sinners. I'm a dad and I'm a sinner. I haven't been perfect as a father. But God wants to be that in our lives. Here's the interesting thing to me is sometimes we are frustrated, we're hurt and everything because of our dad, our earthly father and our relationship with him. And we want more there right? That's not happening. But we have our Heavenly Father who is just standing there outside of our lives wanting to have a relationship with us, and we kind of hold Him away, right? And I think sometimes it's because of some of these hurts that that, uh, crop up or have occurred over time. And I just want to tell you today, as your pastor, that God loves you deeply. He's not working to destroy you and hurt you. He's looking to heal you and build you up and affirm you and let you know who he thinks you are and who he made you to be. There's a Spanish story of a father and son who'd become estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to find him. He searched for months to no avail. Finally, in a a last desperate effort to find his son, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. Can I tell you that God's love for you is indescribable and immeasurable? You will never outrun it, outlive it, outsin it. You cannot escape it or destroy it. 
It is based in the character and nature of God, which is perfect and pure and unchangeable. God's love cannot fail. Now, because of that great love, that deep love, that sacrificial, bloody love for you, would you love each other? That is what John is saying to us, the apostle, today. As we follow Jesus, we will grow spiritually. Last week, we looked at the, the parable that Jesus told of the vine and the branches and producing fruit. And Jesus said, listen, if you are a follower of mine, you will produce fruit. You will have to go through pruning, which is the process of getting your life in a place where it will grow and produce fruit. But that spiritual growth will happen. The evidence of this growth will be seen in our lives, John says in this passage. He says that it will be seen. As we grow, our love will become more like God's love. When we start out loving, children love their parents, but often it is primarily based on what children receive from their parents, that their needs are met. And, and so our love starts out very selfish. We are little selfish creatures. That's just the way we are um, as human beings in our sin nature, which is how we're born in this world. And yet, uh, John says that as you follow Jesus, if you get connected to God, that there's going to be this transformation and growth in your life to the point that your love, when you love others, is far different from that selfish love. It turns into a sacrificial love that gives for others. For many, becoming a parent is kind of the beginning of that. It begins to shape us and change us, and we transform from people that everything needs to be about me to I've got to care for someone else. As we grow, our love will become more like God's. Uh, let's continue reading 1 John chapter 4. Let's continue reading in verse 13. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, we have, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who love, or all who live in love, live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can stand and face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. John's saying, look, very simply, you've experienced God's love. That's going to transform your life. Over time, as you follow him, your love is going to become more perfect. It's going to look more like his. And then you're going to stand in judgment before God, and you're going to stand with confidence because you've lived in this life like Jesus did. You've followed him. Your life has been changed and transformed by your relationship with him. Well, what does that perfect love look like? What does it look like? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which was the first week in this series, um, Judge, Dr. Dr. Martin dug into that, that chapter and looked at that and flushed that out a little bit. You can go back and look at it, uh, that message, if you, didn't, if you weren't here for that. But 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. It gives more detailed information. It paints a picture and describes what this love that comes from God is like. One of the things that we discover in studying the Bible, you know, the Bible was originally written in a different language, right? You know that. And most of the New Testament was written in Greek, which was a language that had many words for love. 
It didn't do what our English language does with one word. So it had different words. One of those words that we see in the New Testament is the word agape. But what's interesting about agape, which is the love that comes from God, unconditional, perfect love, is that it wasn't really, it didn't really appear in the Greek language or in Greek society or even in the Jewish society where the church began. It didn't really show up there until after Jesus, until the New Testament was written. This is what James Packer says about this word. He said, the Greek word agape, which is translated love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. Apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit, as we find in Galatians 5.22. It is a matter of will rather than feeling, for Christians must love even those they dislike. It is a basic element in Christ-likeness. Love, as defined by God, is a vastly different thing than the love we understand as human beings. Jesus was able to hang on the cross, and though he was being killed and murdered by those who hated him, he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Jesus in that moment of sacrifice, which the Bible tells us was in the plan of God for the salvation of the world so that we could have our sins paid for, something we couldn't do on our own. Uh, Our sins could be paid for by Jesus' sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. We could be made right with him, have peace with him, and live eternity with him, right? All of that happened through that act that Jesus made, that sacrificial love that he showed for us. But in that moment, Jesus was able to say, God, forgive these human beings. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, though he was hated by them, saw through that, was able to see human beings made in the image of God and loved by God. And his sacrificial death was for them. Now, there's not many human beings. It seems completely ridiculous and impossible to love someone who's killing you and say, no, God, you love them. They don't know what they're doing. Just forgive them. (laughs) I don't understand that. I don't understand that. But I do know this, that if I walk with God and if I live in God's love, that I can learn what that looks like and I can be able to do it. And you can too. This is the power of real love. It's the power of God's love. And we have access to it. It's not a foreign concept that we can't ever get close to. But we can have that kind of power and strength. The power to kill is one thing. The power to love in the face of hate is a whole different level. And I think you know that. You know how difficult that would be. And yet Jesus demonstrated that ultimate power. And again, we have access to it. We saw last week that uh, Christians will produce fruit in their lives. And part of that fruit is this love. It's this agape love. It's going to be produced in the life of a Christian as they follow Jesus and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Character begins to be transformed. Pruning is the process we talked about last week. Just to review Galatians 5.22. Look at, let's look at it one more time and look at it a little different angle. This is what it says again. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, number one. That's agape love. That's unconditional God love. Joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. 
What are the fruit they're listed in that list? What are the ones that directly affect your relationship with others? I see four at least. You can make some arguments maybe for some more, but love certainly does. If I'm able to walk in and show unconditional love to others, it's going to affect my relationship with others. Patience is another one I see in here that affects my relationship with others. It certainly goes into other areas as well, but patience with other people, uh, if I'm able to be patient with them, it's going to change my relationship with people and how I interact. How about kindness? Directly connected to my relationship with people. Being kind towards others is the demonstration, reflection of this fruit in my life. And then gentleness. Kindness uh, is a character trait that will show up in our lives, again, if we're living by the power of the Spirit. One day there was a teacher who had a class uh, of students, young people in elementary school, and she thought of an exercise for them. Uh, there was some time left in the, in the hour, and so she said, hey guys, pull out a, a sheet of paper. I want you to write down the names of all your classmates. Leave a little bit of space between the names. And so write down their names. They got that done, and she said, now I want you to go and write something affirmational, something positive, something you appreciate about each one of your classmates. And so they took on that exercise, took them the rest of the hour. As they left the class, they all turned their papers into her. She took those papers, and Saturday she sat down and made one sheet of paper for each student. And she wrote their name at the top of the paper, and then she wrote all the comments that their classmates had made about them that were positive and affirming, right? And then on Monday morning, they all got in class. She handed them out. Each one got their paper. And they started to look, look it over. And they started to react with things like, oh, wow, I didn't know anybody felt that way about me. Or even more drastic, I didn't really know anybody appreciated me that much. And they started to be uh, encouraged and uplifted. And then by the end of the class, everybody's, uh, uh, you know, feeling good and pretty happy and, and enjoying the relationship with each other. Because that kind of thing pulls people together. Well, then she uh, forgot about the assignment and, and, uh, and didn't ever really do anything else with it. But it had served its purpose. It had changed the dynamic in the room. I think sometimes we recognize the power of affirmation and encouragement, but we're tempted too often to think to ourselves, if I say this to them, if I build them up, if I say something positive, it's going to go to their head, and then they're not going to be able to get out the door. And then I got a monster on my hands, right? I mean, really, we, we kind of think that sometimes. And uh, I think that for the vast majority of people, that just represents a fundamental misunderstanding of how most people are going through life. I know there's those people that, like the old poem says, you know, um, uh, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I'm one heck of a guy. Gotta say it that way in church. Hey, listen, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, you know, most people don't go through life that way, thinking they're God's gift to the world. You know, you might see somebody, you think, man, they're sure confident. They sure seem like they can do anything, take on anything. I can almost assure you that inside is a bit of insecurity and maybe way more than you think and, and uncertain about uh, their competence or even capacity. I think it's much more likely as we interact with people as we go through life to recognize that most people put on their armor every day and go, go out there and get, get hit and take blows and try to, try to keep it from getting to their heart so it doesn't discourage them so much and, and, and make it through, right? That's just, I think that's the reality of most people's experience. And so, 
I think it is a powerful, powerful thing for us to recognize that what God's trying to do in us is give us a perspective on others that recognizes the positive. I know that the Bible teaches that we're in sin and we're enemies of God and we're separated from him. But I want to tell you the reason that Jesus came to earth to die for us is not because God thinks we're a bunch of junk, right? And we're not worth anything. I mean, the messages of Christianity in the Bible can get a little skewed there. You've got to understand that the value that God places on you is so high. He was willing to do anything to save you. Anything. He sacrificed himself to make sure that you, the most valuable thing to him, was rescued. Listen, God thinks a great deal of you. He created you. He sees the pluses in you. And he thinks you can do way more than you'll ever think you can do. And if you start following him, you'll, you'll see through your life more than you ever thought possible. And that's just the truth of it. That's the truth of what's behind God's thoughts about us. He loves us. You have a father that cares about you. A heavenly father that loves you. If you'll walk in that love, if you'll experience that love, you'll find that you can see the positive in others. You can affirm somebody else instead of being angry all day long at the jerks that you have to interact with. I've shared that with you before. There's days that I go through life and I think, man, why is everybody so mean today? What's their problem? And then I get home, my wife says, dude, you're the problem. <laughs> like, you, know, you got an issue today. Listen, I know it's hard. It's hard and we get caught in the, in the struggle of life and it can be difficult. But walking in the love of God, recognizing his love for me. It changes. It changes us. Well, next, the apostle gives us a pop quiz to determine the truthfulness of our claims. The quiz he gives reveals the answer to this challenging question, or this challenging statement, excuse me. He says this, you're lying if you say you love God, but hate your fellow believer. Once again, this is John. He says this really directly. We're going to read it in a minute. You're lying if you say you love God, but you hate your fellow believer. First John 4, let's keep reading in verse 18. Such love has no fear. And he's talking about judgment, standing before God someday. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Now I told you that uh, John hits hard and he hits you in the mouth a little bit. Like you don't come to this with you know, too much sensitivity. He's going to be rough and he's calling us out. You say you love God. That's easy. Let's see the proof. The proof is in, I'm going to walk around, see how you're relating to other people. Do you love them? Are you, do you have relationships with others that are good? Um, he's tried to convince us in this passage using persuasion, and now I think he just lowers the boom and hits us with it. Look, this is the evidence. You're either telling the truth or you're not. He warns us that if we claim to love God, but hate our brother or sister in Christ, that we're a liar because he says that's impossible. Lying seems to become a way of life for many people, and, uh, and it's a challenge for all of us. Don't get me wrong. There's aspects of life where it can be very tempting to just smooth things over and keep things working socially. And so uh, it's tough, but there's a book called The Day America Told the Truth, 
And they did some surveying in there, and they discovered that 91% of those surveyed lie routinely about matters they consider trivial. 36% lie about important matters. 86% lie regularly to their parents. 75% to their friends. 73% to siblings. And 69% to spouses. So lying, unfortunately, can become a way of life. And it's one of those things that the more you do it, right, the more you do it. And, and it becomes a requirement to get through. And then you've got to remember what you lied about to cover, you know, to keep the story consistent. John is giving us a test, and it's going to reveal our true identity. He says, you claim to be a Christian. Oh, good. That's great. Do you love your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Stories told of four high school boys that were getting close to the end of the year. They're getting spring fever, and they uh, were itching for a break. Kind of the way I'm feeling about fall right now. But they were they were getting itchy for it, and so they skipped classes one morning, went out and had some fun, came into class after lunch, said, "Teacher, sorry, we didn't make it to class this morning. We had a flat tire." And she said, "Oh, no problem. You guys just missed the quiz. Grab a piece of paper and pencil. Sit down. I'll get you caught up." They kind of had a relief, uh, man, whew, you know, it's all going to be okay. The teacher stood there smiling while they got their paper and pencil ready. And when they were ready, she said, okay, first question on the quiz, which tire was flat? <clears throat> hey, sometimes <laughs> uh, we can get caught by a smart teacher. And John is a smart teacher. And he's saying to us, all right, you claim this, you claim this. Well, over here is going to be the evidence that your claim is true. It's easy to make claims. It's hard to back them up. I don't know about you, but I feel like my word means something, and I want to live in such a way that my word uh, is something that people can count on. And John's going to the heart of who we are. As followers of Jesus, we care about that. He's challenging us. Make sure you're backing it up. I know that it's difficult to love your fellow believer. Man, it's hard to love your family some days, right? We get up in the morning and, and uh, people say and do things to us that hurt. We get upset. We get frustrated. Pretty soon we get a little grumpy. Some days we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we're just grumpy. Some days uh, the heat gets to us. I don't know if you noticed, but it's a hot summer. It's going on and on and on. It's hard, right? Get a little cranky. And so that's uh, true. That's the reality of life. And we've got to show grace to each other. This is why grace and mercy are the grease that keep the relationships going. They help us get through hard times. Hey, you were mean to me yesterday. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm going to show grace. Love you anyway. We've got to do that to each other. But we've got to be growing in what it means to love others. We've got to be deepening and strengthening and maturing. And so that our love is more powerful than just that soft fluffy puppy dog thing. 1 Corinthians 13, again, defines love this way. And this, again, is agape love. This is God's love. Just as a review, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. It's not rude either. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It, always hope, it is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. 
We're called to a high standard. We're called to love, real love, the way God loves us. And there's many of us that are there yet, but this is movement. This is progression. This is maturing. This is growing. And we've got to move in that direction. My question is, are you walking in God's love? Are you living every day in God's love? Because that's the only way we're going to be transformed to be able to love other, people's that, other people that way. Will you lay down your pride and personal agenda? Will you sacrifice your right to be right? Will you show grace and forgiveness to each other? Will you allow different views on the Wuhan virus? Will you allow for that? Will you obey Jesus' command to love one another? God, thank you for uh, the challenge that you give us. First of all, thank you for the love that you give us and the way that you care about us so deeply, so profoundly, more than we can really comprehend. But it's real and it's rich and it's thick and it's deep and it's sacrificial. Your love for us. It's real. I pray, God, that you would continue to transform us by your love. Help us to be able to love the way you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.